I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Social anxiety disorder can cause debilitating physical and emotional manifestations when a person is doing such things as meeting new people, speaking in public, or interviewing for a job. It can cause sweating, a rapid heartbeat, shortness of breath, and dizziness. The fear of embarrassment and humiliation can lead to depression and even addiction. Vistagen Therapeutics is developing intranasally delivered therapies for CNS conditions that can provide rapid relief at the onset of an episode, much like someone with asthma might use a rescue inhaler. We spoke to Sean Singh, CEO of Vistagen, about social anxiety disorder, the need for innovative approaches to treat that and other CNS conditions, and the potential for rapid onset therapies to treat a range of mental health disorders. Sean, thanks for joining us. Uh, Daniel, my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners today. We're going to talk about social anxiety disorder, Vistagen Therapeutics, and its efforts to develop an intranasally delivered treatment but before we talk about that, though, I wanted to ask you more broadly about innovation in treating mental health disorders. It, it seems like for a long time, we didn't see a lot of innovation in this area. And I'd say that's changing in a noticeable way. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this and why we're seeing so much activity today. Well, um, certainly the case that you're right, that these therapeutic indications within CNS generally, not just on mental health have lagged behind. I mean, the biology is difficult. We have limited understanding of a lot of these disease processes. Um, there's also been, um, you know, there's not always a, hasn't always been a large army of advocates around mental health disorders in particular. Fortunately, that's changing. Uh, the stigma around mental illness has been a frustrating component. There have been um, certainly some setbacks in some of the other CNS arenas, Alzheimer's in particular, that kind of call, calls into question potential ROI. Same thing with generic products, but mostly there just hasn't been um, there haven't been innovations in the pharmacology around the particular diseases that really we find the current medications fall far short uh, of trying to deal with. But again, I think it's um, you know, it's changing. Fortunately, it's changing quite a bit, and we're excited about what we've got in motion. I think it's we're seeing a lot more activity in the space. Uh, several companies, as we've now started to unpack novel mechanisms of action around particular disorders, depression uh, in, in main particular order there, as well as uh, some of the other uh, mental health disorders. But you're right. Uh, a lot more needs to be done, and it needs to be done rapidly. So that's our quest. Vistagen's working on a, a number of therapeutic candidates, but 
your lead candidate is in development to treat social anxiety disorder. What is that and, and how does it manifest itself and progress? Social anxiety disorder is an incredibly common and prevalent mental health condition, uh, third most prevalent uh, in the U.S., over 23 million people affected by it. And its hallmarks are a real profound fear and anxiety associated with being judged or humiliated or embarrassed in what most of us consider common everyday social and performance situations. And there's a very broad diversity of anxiety-provoking triggers, mostly predictable, uh, often um, or so often unpredictable, but it could be anything ranging from worry about sitting in a classroom and being called on, uh, going into an interview or a discussion with your employer about a raise, um, eating alone in a food court, going on a date, um, sitting in a doctor's office or a, a dentist's office, uh, getting on an airplane. A lot of triggers out there, uh, a lot of times they're associated with people being simply afraid of speaking with people or people worried about what others will say or think about them. The onset is typically early in life. Uh, in adolescence, somewhere in the 8 to 15 range tends to be where the onset occurs. And the duration of the illness is decades. Uh, and it unfortunately makes life impossible in many situations. And there are a lot of opportunity costs related to the disorder. People don't pursue uh, professional and academic um, objectives. They don't develop relationships. They just simply don't get to uh, realize the ideal version of themselves. And it is in the way uh, of a lot of what they really want to accomplish, but simply can't because the anxiety is overwhelming. Uh, you know, it's interesting you say that. It's one of these conditions, I imagine, where people who don't experience may dismiss the significance of it but from a quality of life point of view how disabling can it be uh 100% disabling it could really it radically changes the way people live and you know there's there's somewhat normative behavior uh across a really broad spectrum but folks that are suffering from social anxiety disorder really it's almost irrational because even if they've succeeded and muscled through a particular anxiety-provoking event and they've succeeded without embarrassment, without humiliation, um, without judgment, that same provocation occurs another time. And it's, it's the same, if not almost the same, um, severity of that trigger. So it really impairs functioning. It's very disruptive to the normal rhythm of life. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, there, there aren't a lot of options to help manage it down in a way that um, causes there to be confidence that the management tools are not necessarily worse than what they're trying to address in the first instance. But, yeah, it's you'll you'll see scenarios where there's significant increase in heart rate. There's significant sweating. Uh, there's blood pressure increases. There are a lot of objective measures as well as. Um, social scenarios where people self-isolate. Uh, they don't interact. It's not shyness. It's simply a, uh, a debilitating force that is, uh, is upon people suffering from this disorder for years and years and years. 
And how is it typically diagnosed? Well, it's there's a, a Bible, if you will, of uh, psychiatric disorders called the DSM-5, and there are features that are tells, right? Fear of, of embarrassment or avoidance of performance or social situations. Um, the clinical assessment includes those kinds of discussions as well as um, discussions to make sure it's not panic, that it's not depression, that it's not paranoia. So there's a lot of things, a lot of particular conditions that are also ruled out during that assessment period. But the main, main tells are really a profound fear uh, of interacting with people. The, the most profound fear people with social anxiety disorder have is speaking to people uh, or being involved. But it can also be in other scenarios, you wouldn't be surprised uh, going to a restroom in a, in a public forum or ball game uh, in a mall, um, eating alone in a food court. You know, there are different, different triggers, but it is a very broad spectrum of potential triggers that people have to have uh, the ability to wrestle down for uh, over a very long period of time. Well, if it is treated, there are a lot of people, um, the 11 million people or so in this country that are actually diagnosed, uh, not all of them are treated. Only about five and a half million are actually under some form of treatment. Um, the total prevalence is over somewhere over 23 million in this country. So there was an even alarming indication. These numbers were off the charts even before the pandemic, but these are accretive markets and the numbers have unfortunately skyrocketed, but several different options. The key point is first, all of these options have to augment talk therapy. That's a critical uh, foundational piece, psychotherapy. And so that's first and foremost, um, the, the first step on the road to trying to knock down this disorder. But there are also antidepressants. There are three of them that are approved, uh, old school SSRIs and one SNRI. Uh, sometimes benzodiazepines are used on an off-label basis. Um, they're not approved. They've never been systematically uh, developed in controlled studies for social anxiety disorder. Um, sometimes beta blockers are used. Um, drugs like uh, propranolol are used, but um, all of them, again, don't really hit the need that we're trying to accomplish uh, with our investigational lead candidate, PH94B. But uh, so I would say antidepressants, beta blockers and, and benzos. It's a condition that tends to be described in behavioral and emotional terms. How well understood is the biology of social anxiety disorder and how important is that understanding to developing therapies? That's critical. Um, the neurobiology of fear is a, is a key focus of our of our efforts and really trying to understand what is it that causes people to be anxious, what causes a social anxiety disorder, as well as the other anxiety disorders that are spokes on the anxiety disorder wheel. Um, the, the key role is, is the amygdala, the main fear and anxiety uh, center of the brain. And when you have excitatory activity, that's associated with um, external provocations, it's, they're triggering events. And so you really have to find a way biologically to inhibit um, those 
neurotransmitters, those chemicals that are associated with um, with the uh, the symptoms of anxiety that you're trying to knock down. So it's it's a much more understood than it has been in in many years past. Uh, there's never really a perfect understanding, but there's certainly parts of the brain that we all know are associated with uh, with anxiety-related disorders, depression disorders, and to try to get the right sequence of effects at the end of the day to either inhibit anxiety in an anti-anxiety arena or stimulate activity in an antidepressant activity, uh, those are the keys. So the mechanism of action of a drug is critical uh, to make sure that you are trying to accomplish your objective, but while at the same time not going off target and causing things you don't want to cause, sedation, dissociation, uh, hallucinations, addiction, uh, risks of, of, of any kind of abuse liability are always concerning in these areas. You mentioned your lead experimental therapy, PH94B. What is it and, and how does it differ from existing therapies? Well, first and foremost, it's a nasal spray. And it's formulated as a nasal spray um, because the neurons that are associated with the neuropsychiatric benefits we're trying to achieve are, are located in the nasal passage. So with this drug, we have the benefit, this drug candidate, we have the benefit of, with very small doses, microgram level doses, um, spraying it directly onto the receptors in the nasal passage that we think are critical. These are peripheral receptors, meaning that they're in the nasal passage, not in the brain. It's very important that the distinction and why the, the mechanism we believe is so differentiated is uh, this drug so far and all the testing we've seen doesn't uh, show that it requires direct CNS neuron activity. So it doesn't need to get cross over the blood brain barrier and act directly on neurons in the brain. And that's important because it reduces significantly uh, the time to the effect, it also reduces significantly the potential for off-target activity that you don't want to achieve. So with an oral drug, uh, currently the, the main drugs that you would look to to augment talk therapy uh, are systemic. They're oral drugs. So you take them orally, they're uh, broken down uh, metabolically in your, in your liver, your kidney, they cross into your blood, they've got to go up to your brain and cross the blood-brain barrier, and then they've got to go find in your brain where we need the activity, but also try to avoid where we don't. So we don't want to connect opiate receptors or nicotine receptors or dopamine, dopamine receptors. Uh, so the fact that PH94B as a drug candidate so far is not detectable in the plasma, meaning that at these microgram level doses, it doesn't require you know, full body exposure, systemic exposure or uptake to achieve the therapeutic effect we're trying to see uh, totally differently. When these chemosensory neurons, they're called, located in the nasal passage, uh, are activated with a small amount of nasal spray, PH94B nasal spray, what we've seen in studies is, um, is a neuropsychiatric effect within about 15 minutes. And that, we believe, is accomplished by one um, almost a, a hardwiring effect from those neurons to what are called interneurons the, in the olfactory bulb, right, at the base of the brain, that then broadcasts forward to the amygdala. So you're achieving the action really from a distance. And that is part of the reason we believe the safety profile so far in all completed studies has just been reflective uh, of what we would love to see. 
at the end of the day when we're fo- finished with phase three development. And that is a drug that can work quickly, but not deliver the kind of side effects and safety concerns we're typically worried about with existing medicines. Uh, side effects of antidepressants, side effects of benzodiazepines. The challenge with the antidepressants that are approved is they're chronic meds. What we think people need is the ability and the flexibility to on demand when an anxiety provoking trigger occurs or right before it occurs, if it's predictable, uh, to be able to bring down from where most social anxiety disorder patients live, which is at, at a level of anxiety that is characterized really as more than a little uncomfortable. Uh, we all have to have some anxiety. Their normal anxiety um, allows us to be energized, to be focused. It allows us to avoid uh, doing silly and unsafe things like walking into the street in front of a bus. Um, but when your normal level of anxiety is at a heightened level where it's impairing your ability to function, well, that's the challenge. Uh, and then if that happens and it's persistent, then it affects your life in a way that we are trying to give people the ability uh, to make what is currently impossible for them possible. And fortunately, the way this, this mechanism of action works, we're able to use the nose uh, as a portal really for neuroactivity that can, we believe, can generate anti-anxiety effects, but very rapidly. Again, a benzodiazepine may be about 30 minutes that will take to work take it orally, uh, but then the effect will last quite a long time, and it could make you sedated, it could make you worry about addiction and so forth. Uh, The duration of effects so far in completed studies, we believe is somewhere around an hour or hour and a half with 94B, which, uh, again, we think the need is flexibility to take this candidate out of your purse or your pocket or your backpack, uh, because people have different types of triggers within a particular day, or they may have the same trigger over a long period of the day. The data so far will support, uh, we believe, use up to about four times a day. So you may have uh, one particular trigger in the morning, meeting with colleagues or sitting in a class. You may then have a friend uh, or maybe possibly a, a date, a new friend at lunch, and then maybe you're going next door to your neighbors or seeing in-laws um, later in the, in the evening. These could all be different triggers for the same person. And with an antidepressant, you really have to have the ability to wait for them to work. The long onset of antidepressants is the challenge because even if you achieve a therapeutic effect, uh, you're not likely to see it for quite a long time. And you have to deal with the side effects that are associated with those medicines all along the way. Uh, It's hard even if you don't get the effect at the end of the day. So compliance becomes a challenge. You, you've likened it to a rescue inhaler, inhaler that someone with asthma might use. Is there any sense on how lasting an effect would have? Yes, it's, uh, it's similar to what I noted. It's, we think so far it's about an hour, uh, could be an hour and a half for that duration of that effect with an onset with the, with the, the um, Onset meaning when we see the benefits start to calm people down, to try to drive. Um, again, the objective is to bring you to a, really a normal level of anxiety that we all need. Um, so sort of it is really like a rescue inhaler in that that 
you can sense the onset of an asthma attack. You want to get in up front of that in order to knock it down so it doesn't occur. Uh, same thing with migraines. Uh, you know, the acute treatment dynamic for migraines um, with oral meds, or now there's even potentially a, a nasal spray for migraine treatment. The, the objectives are always to have that uh, as needed on demand. And uh, that's really what does not exist. There is no cur currently uh, FDA-approved fast-acting or rapid-onset treatment uh, for anxiety in acute treatment for anxiety in adults with social anxiety disorder. And that's, that's the objective. That's the indication that we are developing this uh, investigational candidate in phase three, four right now. It's very, hopefully, um, we're in a position to be able to drive this all the way to the market. But we'll see. We have two very important phase three studies that we'll be reading out um, this year. Well, what's known about the safety and efficacy of it from the studies that have been done to date? Well, importantly, uh, we just had a really interesting uh, and important uh, consensus with the FDA around the composite framing of what we've seen so far preclinically um, and what we've also seen clinically with the drug. We know a few things, importantly, that there isn't any binding affinity. Um, the drug doesn't connect with the types of receptors and that are usually associated with abuse liability. So we've seen studies that show it doesn't bind to opiate or nicotine or dopamine receptors. We've also shown no binding to androgens, um, steroidal hormonal receptors that are often a problem. Uh, we do know also it doesn't potentiate GABA. Uh, GABA is a neurotransmitter that often is associated with benzodiazepine activity. So sedation and some of the other issues. Um, and we know from uh, radio labeling the drug candidate that we don't see it uh, in the brain and, and with systemic uptake. So those are all parts of the mechanistic understanding of why we think we also haven't seen any clinical signals, uh, any behavioral signals or any adverse events or abuse liability related adverse events in the clinical work, in the human studies. So ultimately, that's the most important part. Uh, in the completed studies to date, there haven't been any worrisome um, adverse events and certainly none that have been associated with abuse liability potential. So we'll continue to monitor that um, as we go forward. We have a long-term safety study. Every company needs to do that in order to have a, a new drug approved by the FDA. We have to have um, a lot of subjects on the drug for a long time. So we'll keep watching that, and we'll continue to watch that even if we are approved and the drug does get into the market. It's of paramount importance, especially in this space. But again, it's really because of where we think the drug goes and where it doesn't go, uh, and that it doesn't go to the places that typically cause the kinds of problems that might affect compliance and outcomes uh, with existing medications, especially in the central nervous system arena. You're looking at PH94B and a number of other indications. What's the range of indications you're looking at and how related are they? And is the expectation it would be used in the same way to arrest the onset of symptoms? Uh, great question. And there, uh, there are, as I noted, a lot of anxiety disorders uh, that are spokes on that wheel. Uh, the development strategy initially is to really focus um, with particular attention on those anxiety disorders where there is an acute trigger. 
uh, in an acute need that we have the potential with a rapid onset drug candidate to maybe knock down. Um, and there are, again, there's several. Um, you think about post-traumatic stress disorder and sleep anxiety. You think about panic. Um, think about potentially postpartum anxiety, uh, adjustment disorder. There, there are a number of different uh, phobias also that could be, uh, we think this drug could benefit procedural anxiety. People worried about getting a, an MRI or a CT or a, even a procedure in a, uh, in a dentist office, uh, exam anxiety. There's just several, so many, almost countless potential scenarios where an anxiety, um, especially if it's a persistent trigger, that can uh, we think can benefit from a medicine that has acute onset. So we'll see. It's the key focus in late stage clinical studies right now, of course, is social anxiety disorder, as you noted. But we will also be doing some exploratory studies. We're doing one right now in phase two A exploratory study in adjustment disorder with anxiety, which is characterized by and a lot of it related to the pandemic, where people without a pre existing history have had some trauma in recent uh, months from the onset of their condition where their ability to function is impaired. And we've seen a lot of that with, uh, in, during COVID with first responders, with doctors, uh, nurses, teachers, um, people whose lives have been disrupted. Uh, whenever you have disruption of routine, and you have uncertainty about anything in particular that's persistent, uh, that could really be a, a recipe for an anxiety disorder. And unfortunately, the, the max set tends to be anxiety and depression, though that's a comorbidity. Uh, but unfortunately, you see it progress beyond that to substance abuse, to suicidality. So it's very important to intercede early, uh, certainly with talk therapy. If you start to see persistent signals that um, that are associated with these various conditions, the company completed a hundred million dollar public offering at the end of 2020. How far will existing funding take you? Uh, well, you're right, and that was a transformative financing with uh, what we regard as some of the leading investors that are long biased and healthcare focused in the space. So that was a wonderful offering, uh, and that's enabled us to really be well-funded through the current slate of studies that we've begun, that these are um, NDA, new drug application enabling studies for PH94B and SAD. We call it uh, the Palisade Phase Three program. So those, those are the two studies, uh, Palisade One, Palisade Two, I noted we'll read out this year. And hopefully those, if successful, will be anchors for a new drug application. But um, somewhere down the road, of course, if we're successful, um, we'll move, especially as we move closer to the commercial scale up, we will certainly explore multiple uh, standard slate of multiple non-dilutive and equity-based options at that time. But right now, um, these are uh, well-funded potential catalysts that, are, um, that we think will have potential transformative uh, impacts as we move between now and the end of this year. So. It's not a great time to be a public biotech. Vistagen has been trading around a dollar, a difficult point to attract investor interest. How does being a public company complicate your job today? And what's the discussion you have with investors? 
Uh, interesting question. Well, look, I mean, I have a business to run and I am very confident and passionate about what we're trying to accomplish. The change that we're trying to bring about and the need that we're focused on is just enormous. And that's what gets me up every day. So regardless of the market moment, um, the main goal of driving a business is the same, whether you're a public or a private company. And typically as companies grow, as I've seen in my 30 years in this space, uh, they attract larger pools of investors. And that's certainly been our experience, especially in the last two years. So I suspect that's going to continue to be the case in the years ahead. And as I noted, we have a strong and typically long biased healthcare focused investor base. And so we'll do even more to fortify that base and um, launch initiatives to raise awareness. As, as I noted, we have these two potentially pivotal phase three uh, data readouts that are coming very soon. So, you know, this, this is what investors are focusing on these days. Uh, we had a highly statistically significant phase two program that the phase three is based on. Uh, so there's a lot of interest in the, the design of the phase three uh, and the progress that we're making towards completing and, and uh, releasing data on both of those two studies. So um, that's what we talk about, as well as what that could mean for us as a company as we, uh, if we are successful with this phase three program and, and migrate from a clinical stage company towards a commercial stage company, while also uh, expanding an R&D base with the second asset, PH10, which is focused on major depressive disorder in a rapid onset manner. Uh, and we have others that uh, we think will be behind those. Sean Singh, CEO of Vistagen Therapeutics. Sean, thanks so much for your time today. Daniel, my pleasure. Thank you again, and thank your listeners for their time. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.